Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I am doing fantastic. How are you today, Tim? I am doing really well and excited to introduce our guest to our audience. Her name is Nikki Bell. She has an incredible story. And there's nothing that we can really say to properly inform everyone of Nikki's story. You have to really hear it from herself. If you want more information as you're listening to what she's saying, go to liftworcester.org. Lift is the organization that she formed. It stands for Living in Freedom Together. And you can see how Nikki is trying to better those around her, better her community, and just make it a much more safer environment for everyone. Okay, everybody, thanks a lot for listening. you got to hear Nikki's story in her own words. And we are going to break for a word from our sponsor here, and then we'll be right back with Nikki Bell. Welcome to the podcast, Nikki Bell. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Well, no, thank you for taking the time to uh, speak with us. We're really fortunate to uh, to have you on the show. You came on our radar because we were doing this live event in Worcester, uh, Death by Incarceration, had a uh, live event at the Brickbox Theater last weekend. It, it went great. You were one of the speakers, sort of a panel discussion. And we were looking for people in Worcester who had an impact on their community. And you were the first name that our friend Lisa had come up with and said, you need to connect with her because she's perfect for what you guys are doing on stage and not only that, but she has a following of people who need to hear who need to hear what's going on. They need to hear the death by incarceration story, and they need to hear you tell your story as well. So thank you for joining us on that live show. And thank you for joining us today. Uh, I think our listeners are going to be really uh, captivated by your story. Thank you. Thank you. And meet Jen. This is Jen Amell. Nikki, Jen, Jen Amell. <laughs> nice to meet you, Jen. It's a pleasure to meet you too. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I think it's very, very important. I agree. You guys are actually like your studio is actually uh, like, right. That's where like the track and all the prostitution activity kind of takes place over there. So interestingly enough, fun fact. <laughs> it's uh, interesting because I was going to bring that up during this interview that one of the first things that uh, you had said when we had met was that you used, I think you said, I used to live on that street. And then mm -hmm. you explained yeah. what that really was. Can you tell us again what, what that really means? Sure. So I was a prostituted woman in the city of Worcester. And, you know, there's a very high corridor of prostitution, which is like right uh, near over there. But we started a drop-in center that was actually, again, on that corner back there. Uh, but for a long time, I was homeless in that community and living outside in a car uh, in one of the parking lots on that street. I'm curious, Nikki, if you could tell us your story from the beginning, like how how did this happen to you? What led to you um, being in a situation in which this could happen? And what are common stories that you hear? Yeah. So uh, my story is is not unique. So I, I didn't actually grow up in Worcester. I'm from the South Shore area. And growing up, uh, my mother was really sick and just kind of my family unit and those protective factors that many people have kind of fell away. And so I started, you know, my mother, like I said, was was really sick consistently in and out of the hospital. At 14 years old, um, I had my first suicide attempt in psych hospitalization and started experimenting with drugs and alcohol um, at a very young age. At 16 years old, I got a job at a local restaurant in my town and 
there was a guy there that started paying attention to me, you know, and again, that felt good. I felt really invisible at that time. Uh, my, my father had, and my mother's marriage had split up and I was actually like living at home by myself, my, my junior year in high school, which sounds really cool and fun, right? When you think about it. And initially I was like, oh, this is really cool and fun, right? Like nobody's here. But then I also remember at 16 years old, like hiding knives in the couch, you know, and by the doors and things like that, because though it sounded really really cool and fun. It's also really scary to be by yourself, right? And so this guy started paying attention to me. And again, that that felt good as I felt invisible at that time in my life. And, you know, what he was doing was a process called grooming, right? But at 16 years old, I was not able to recognize those things and notice the long game that he was he was playing, right? And so I used to say that it started out as my first my first relationship, sexual relationship, but the reality was he was 32 years old and I was 16 and there was nothing romantic about it. He was he was grooming me. And so over time, you know, he started telling me that he could get me out of all of the craziness at home and we could start a life together and we just needed money. And I think people have this idea of like trafficking and prostitution as like, you know, being thrown in the back of a van and dragged across borders and handcuffed to the radiator. Uh, but that's not really what it looks like. And when we frame it in that way, not only does our community not see how that really plays out, but also individuals like me don't recognize their experience as trafficking, right? Because I'm also seeing that same messaging that's coming into our community. So he started having me first at 16 years old dance at bachelor parties. Again, my substance use started to kind of escalate at that time, because as you can imagine, a 16-year-old girl in a room full of intoxicated men, right, does not feel safe, right? And so started with dancing, and then soon he was sending me into uh, hotels in Boston to have sex with adult men for money. And so that's kind of how I entered prostitution. And then, you know, for those couple of years of my life, it, it's like, you know, people were like, oh, you're trafficked. Nobody was looking for you. And it's like, yeah, but I wasn't missing. Right. I didn't have supervision at home. I was initially still going to high school and school and playing sports and doing all of those things. But as the exploitation increased, obviously, I pulled away from my peer group. Right. I pulled away from the other things that were happening in my life because of shame and because of, you know, just not wanting to show up for life anymore. And so that continued, you know, I think about just that very short window of being a, a kid in the commercial sex street. And it's like, you know, the, the things that happened to me throughout that, the violence, the fear, the substance use, the abuse. And what ended up happening was I ended up getting pregnant as a kid. And, you know, I used to always say I was pregnant by my trafficker, but the reality is I could have been pregnant by any one of those adult women that were paying to access my body. And I actually got away from that situation because I was, I went across the country to California to give my daughter up for adoption. And I did that. And I came back uh, after that with a really serious substance use disorder. I started taking opiates after I gave birth to my daughter and ended up with an addiction to opiates and came back uh, to Massachusetts and uh, disclosed to, to family members that I was struggling and they, they helped me access medication to come off the opiates, but I didn't learn anything about recovery. I didn't get any counseling for the dysfunction at home for the violence I had experienced for any of those things. And so though I stopped using opiates, I, I didn't get treatment really for, for all of the other components that were driving me to use. My mother then passed away and I just ended up really cycling through different institutions. I, you know, I've been in every psychiatric institution in Massachusetts, most of them multiple times, trying to get the help that I needed, but never getting it until I finally landed in Worcester for a treatment center. And I came to Worcester 
for treatment um, and decided I was going to start my life over and I was going to do that at the pit shelter, which in hindsight probably wasn't a great decision, right? Uh, which is actually right down the old, the initial pit shelter was right on Main Street. And I remember being 24 years old and walking into that place. And I probably had dollar signs on my forehead, right? Like I was not from the area. I didn't know anything about uh, Worcester. I had never been involved in street prostitution and, you know, initially when I walked into the shelter, you know, a guy took notice of me and was telling me who I needed to stay away from and how to stay safe. But the reality was he was who I needed to stay away from. And very quickly, I was introduced into street prostitution and introduced to crack cocaine. And I spent the next decade of my life caught in this cycle of, you know, getting in cars uh, because I needed money for drugs and then needing drugs to forget what just happened in that car, right? And, you know, cycling in and out of incarceration, cycling, you know, in and out of treatment centers until I finally uh, was able to exit at 33 years old. Wow. Gosh, Nikki, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Any one of those things that you've been through is enough trauma for a whole lifetime. But you were able to use your experience to, to start something good, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. So when I got out, there was like a lot of work going on in the city. There was this like coalition called the Worcester Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation. And that's actually how I found my pathway out of the sex trade was through social justice work and, and through using my experience to, to try to impact change for my sisters that were still trapped there. Wow. And do you find that other women are better able to open up to you because you've had similar experiences? Yeah. I mean, at this point, it's so funny, you know, because when we started, it was like me, right? And a pot of coffee and the clothes out of my closet. And now it's like looking around um, and seeing many of my, most of my colleagues are actually people with lived experience and, and themselves, those that have um, come through our programs and are now out of the life employed, right? Doing those things. And it's almost like this, this trust that is kind of unspoken. It's like, they know we're not judging them. They know we've been there. And, you know, I think it's kind of, you know, even like leveraging that to help connect them to community-based partners that we trust and uh, have faith in. Hmm. And the women that you do help through your organization, are they still living in prostitution or have they exited already? So uh, it, that's kind of like a wide, uh, a wide range. So at Jonna's Place, Jonna's Place is very specific for uh, women with co-occurring mental health and substance use disorders that have been prostituted and are exiting, right? But I think people have this, like exiting is a process, not an event, right? And so, you know, they are working really hard at their recovery and trying to find their own pathway out of all of those things, right? But for the most part, they're, they're, they're doing their best to get out of the life. And then we have other programs where we're just meeting people where they're at. Like Harbor is a 15 bed, low barrier, maximum vulnerability shelter. And, you know, people are using that as a safe space and they're still actively being exploited in the sex trade. Uh, but they can come in, access assistance and clothing and case management and all of those things. And when they're ready, we will help them uh, to take those steps to exit. You had mentioned uh, something right off the uh, top there when you said that you felt invisible. And I'm wondering if that's something that is almost like a first indicator or, or for lack of a better term, like a warning sign mm -hmm. for anyone who was in your position. Feeling invisible feels to me like that could be something you look at and, and say, well, that's where it started when you have that feeling. Is, is that kind of, yeah. is that accurate? 
Yeah. Yeah. I would say, I would absolutely say it is. And like one of the things that like made me vulnerable is like that, like lack of protective factors. Right. And feeling like nobody, nobody saw me. Right. It's like, I'm trudging through school. I'm going to visit my mom, like on the weekends, my dad, you know, was not, was not there. And, you know, he was trying to be there, but I, you know, also wouldn't, you know, it was hard to disclose your father was going on, obviously. Um, and so really feeling like, wow, all of this stuff is happening to me and nobody, nobody even sees that, right? And so that's one of the things that, you know, when they do interviews with traffickers and things like that, that's one of the things that they kind of look for is like people that don't have those supports, people that have low self-esteem. You know, there's one interview with a trafficker. There's like, I used to just go to the mall and look for the girl that had her head down. And it's like, wow. So it's like, that's, that's their business, right? Uh, their business is spotting vulnerability and becoming what people need. And you're saying they, and, and for anyone who's not like watching the video of this, uh, when you said that about looking for the girl with the head down, all of us had the same reaction where mm-hmm. it was sort of like terrified. Like that is a terrifying mm-hmm. thought. Um, and when you say they, you're speaking about the men who would groom young women mm-hmm. like yourself and they would go out and they'll scout locations like a yep. mall because they know that that's where they're going to find these people. Yep. Yep. They scout locations like where they know that there's like residential or like shelters for kids. Right. They, you know, almost all of the the women, adult women and the kids that we work with had some type of system involvement or in custody of DCF. Right. So thinking about, you know, that's that's their game, you know, is like finding places where vulnerable, vulnerable people exist and then preying upon that vulnerability. Yeah. Um, You touched on something a bit earlier that I think is is really important, at least for our audience. Uh, oftentimes we cover cases of missing young women and young boys and stuff. And there are cases where it's it's clear they were abducted. It's clear that they were kidnapped. And a lot of the theories that we hear people talk about is like, oh, maybe they were trafficked. Can you talk a little bit about the likelihood of someone being abducted rather than like groomed mm-hmm. in the way that you're saying? Sure. So uh, it's like less than 5% of trafficking cases are through like force and abduction in that way, right? That's a very, very, you know, small portion. It's like you see these things all over social media too. It's like, no, I was at Walmart and this woman came up and I called the police and they said she was a trafficking ring. And it's like, stop that. Like, that is not how this happens. You did not call the police. You're a liar. Um, I've called them and they told me you're lying. Anyways, I don't really do that, but that's what I feel like doing because it's nonsense. And it actually deflects from the, 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 the way that exploitation and trafficking happens. Right. And I'm not diminishing people's experiences that, that it has happened in that way. But the reality is traffickers do not need to go out and like throw someone in the back of a van and kidnap them because it's our own failed policies and systems that are rendering people vulnerable to exploitation, right? So they're not going to like pull up and, you know, kidnap your kid out of the front lawn, right? That's like heavily supervised because they don't even need to take that risk, right? There are so many kids that are missing, that are experiencing homelessness that, right, that they can prey upon in the, in that way. Yeah. And and likewise, um, when people fall into victim blaming, it's like when when these young women are in these situations and stuff, it's like, why didn't you leave? And they just don't understand like the psychological process that you go through even to like get into prostitution. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so it's like, why didn't you leave and go where? 
right? Like the reason I ended up in the sex trade was because I didn't have those supports and things in place, right? So it's like, why didn't you leave? Well, I'm like, were you going to take me in? Right? Because I didn't have anywhere to go, right? Um, right. And I think that the level of like invisibility too, it's like when you're in prostitution, it feels like the only people that see you are those that are wanting to harm and buy you, Right. And you even become so marginalized from your own community, you know? It's like, I remember like being on a street corner and this like, woman walking by with her children and, you know, the way the woman, like she pulled her children, like, like really close to her as if like, they touched me, they might become what I am. Right. And it's like this, these levels of like marginalization that like an invisibility that you feel. Right. So it's hard to exit because you feel like where, where are you going to go? Who's going to help you? Right. And even trying to get out, like trying to access like services or programming, right? There was never any place for me that actually addressed like and treated me as a whole human being. Like everything was really siloed, like go here for mental health treatment and go here for substance use and go to the DV shelter. But then you go to the DV shelter and they're like, what is she doing here? She's not a victim. You know, she's a prostitute, right? Like, and so it's like, you don't feel like you can even access that existing resources in our community because of the way you're treated by the participants in them and then also the people that are running the programs. Yeah, well said, absolutely. And and you said something like when you're a young person in that situation, you feel like your traffickers are the only ones who who pay attention to you to make you feel less invisible. And I imagine that might be because like you're given a value, like assigned mm-hmm. a value and it becomes yep. this like economic exchange. And it's like, well, if I'm worth nothing, to anyone else other than like selling my body, then that gives you a, a warped sense of value, I imagine. Yeah, it does. And I think that's one of the hardest parts about like exiting, you know, and it was like, for me, finding that path through social justice work where it's like, you know, for the first time in my life, I felt like I had some value outside of my body. And 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 that feeling um, of being accepted by, by my community and supported in that in that process was so important. And it's so, it's complicated, right? Because I remember being in jail and one of the the girls that was in jail with me, she was like, you know, talking about me. She's like, yeah, Nikki really knows how to work a corner. And I was like, yeah, I do. Right. Like it was like this sense of pride, right. That like I was good at something. Right. And it, and you know, nobody else had ever said I was good at anything. And so it becomes this like, you know, at least there's, there's something I'm good at. Everybody wants to, to, feel like they're, they have value, that they're good at something, that they have skills to offer that, right? So what, you know, it's, and it's trying to find that, that same value outside of the sex trade can be really complicated for people when you've been told your whole life that that doesn't exist. Yeah, it seems like a, uh, a big problem. Um, and you mentioned that police didn't, ne- never asked you if you were choosing to do it. Yeah. So, I mean, I was arrested you know, it's like 30, 40, 40 times, uh, ended up with like 29 convictions. And never once in any of those interactions with law enforcement, was there any question about like, is anybody making you do this? Do you want to stop? And, you know, again, it just piles on this like level of invisibility, right? That like, wow, like they don't even care enough to ask me why I'm all beat up, right? They don't even care, right? Uh, it was about arresting me for a misdemeanor crime, right? then it becomes about 
who's who's perpetrating violence against prostituted people, right? And the levels of violence in prostitution too, it's like, I think it's so people don't understand because it's been so glamorized as this like pretty woman, you know, idea where this like sex buyer is going to come and rescue, right? Like, and, you know, people don't recognize just how normal violence becomes uh, in prostitution. And for most, for most survivors, also prior to prostitution, right? Most of us have grown up in households of violence and that's how kind of love is even shown, right? I mean, we've had people be like, well, he doesn't hit me. He must not really love me. And it's like, well, well, let's unpack that, <laughs> right? But that's because that's all, like, again, all you've ever, ever known. But yeah, and I think that's something that we're working really hard to change. Uh, we're actually working to change legislation so that prostituted people can no longer be criminalized for their own exploitation. But buyers will still be held accountable um, and as will traffickers, right? And so, and we're also working really hard to educate law enforcement, but it's it's really hard because they just have, it's, it's a different culture there is, is what we're always at. Um, yeah, I was, I was actually going to ask you about that. I, I looked it up briefly and it, it seems to be the Swedish model, like they <laughs> decriminalized sex work and then <laughs> criminalized buying sex, right? Mm-hmm. And just, yeah. does that work? Yes, it's actually, um, yeah. So yes, it has. And it's now been implemented in over 10 countries around the globe. Um, and, you know, I think people have this idea that like the oppressed progressive approach to take is to like decriminalize the, the entire sex trade, right? But what we see happens is violence against prostituted people increases, trafficking increases, right? We become a sex tourism destination. And there's already not enough people in prostitution to meet the current demand that exists for sex. And so that's why you see trafficking, right? And it's like, you know, it's also funny because it's like, if you know, here we are, people like, you know, and I don't use the term sex work uh, very intentionally. Uh, you know, it was a, a term coined by the pimp lobby to sanitize the violence that is in prostitution, right? And kind of gloss that over. Prostitution is not a job like any other. It's funny because we have to traffic people into prostitution to meet the current demand, right? If it was such a great job, I mean, we don't see like computer programmers being trafficked into there or like, you know, it's like people are not voluntarily entering, right? And so like when we have to think about what that really looks like for people and and yeah, so it, it does work. Uh, it's reduced violence. It's reduced prostitution. And it also caused a cultural shift in Sweden where if you ask Swedish men, if like they believe that buying access to somebody's body is an act of violence, right? Um, so I think it really kind of sets a cultural, cultural norm as well. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. Sorry, I, I need a, I need a little explanation on, did you say the pimp lobby? Yeah. So the pro sex lobby. So it's like, you know, it's a machine, right? When yeah. you think about how much money like is funneled into that, right. Uh, from the pornography industry and all of that, right. Like they, when you look at like who stands to benefit from uh, the sex trade being criminalized, it is certainly not the exploited person. It is those that are buying access. It is those that are earning money off the backs of prostituted people. Uh, and so, you know, there's been a, a like, a, you know, even that like push with like using that language of like sex work, right? It's It was meant to like normalize prostitution as like a job like any other, right? Um and help people make it more palatable for, for the general community. And so, you know, just thinking about like who stands to benefit. Right. And there's a whole machine behind that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it definitely seems like in more progressive circles um, or among liberals or whatever, that the conversation has shifted to use these terms like sex work, work to normalize it, like mm -hmm. sex work is real work. But I often hear this rhetoric from people who are engaged in that kind of behavior as like cam models and mm -hmm. are who are like kind of doing yeah. it from the comfort of their home and yeah. are not in immediate danger. Mm -hmm. And and I think that speaks so greatly um, to the experiences of those women and men who like are out on the street. Yeah, I always say it's like a really privileged choice to be able to choose sex work, right? Most people enter systems of prostitution because they don't have any choices, right? They're aging out of systems of care, you know, and also there's like a lot of crap, like talk around like uh, conflating trafficking and prostitution and and, you know, for me, heroin can become just as much of a pimp as an actual person, right? As can poverty, as can lack of access, as can, right? So it's, you know, it's ironic to me. It's always like the privileged white woman, like deferring entrance to Yale while she like raises her tuition money. That's like decriminalized sex work. And it's like, you, you know, you're not trading sex for a fucking sandwich. So I really don't want to hear from you, right? I'm um, sorry, I, you know, I don't mean to be, uh, but that's the reality of it, right? It's like, like you, you're like, you get to do that when you choose to, right? Like for most of us, again, we are forced into it due to maybe a third party or maybe just due to the circumstances in our life, right? And the reality is also like, that is the minority of people in prostitution, right? So you know, the, the privileged white woman that's sitting, uh, you know, in her lives on her dad's trust fund, right? In a, in a penthouse in New York that's doing cam work for fun, right? That is the minority, right? Most people in prostitution are people living in poverty, are women and girls of color that have uh, been involved in foster care, that have experienced previous childhood sexual abuse, right? So it's like, it looks LGBTQ plus news, right? Like, let's start talking about who is represented in prostitution, because it is certainly not that, <laughs> sorry. No, uh, yeah, maybe I, you I can really, beat those things out. When I <laughs> <laughs> nope, we're gonna play it. <laughs> um, yeah, I find I find that so interesting. Like, additionally, I don't know if we want to keep this in or not. Um, but I find it so interesting that the LGBTQ community has mm -hmm. taken up this gauntlet of like sex mm -hmm. work is real work, and you know, yeah. empowering people to do this. And I mean, I I myself am a member of the LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Community. And I found that so strange. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's really, it's so sad. It's, it's really kind of like shows who we are uh, as a society and a community. You know, there was a hearing in DC about like decriminalizing prostitution. And a lot of the, the folks that showed up were uh, trans women of color. But when you heard them talking, right, you actually listened to the, the overarching themes. It was, I can't get employment right? I can't get actual employment because I'm discriminated against in the workplace, or I can't get housing because of discrimination. And so our solution as a community shouldn't be suck dick for the rest of your life, right? It should be, let's fight workplace discrimination. Let's make sure they have access to housing and jobs and employment, right? Because if you're saying I'm doing this because I have to, and I can't survive any other way, then we should be stepping back and saying, okay, let's like lift this community up and help them survive in different ways, right? And I'm not saying that from a place of judgment, but it's not actually something that they want to be doing. It's something that they have to be doing. And also trans women of color are brutalized in the sex trade. 
murdered. I mean, like, it's incredible, right? And so, you know, I understand, like, you know, you know, to an extent, not to the extent that uh, LGBT, but also like having somebody validate your identity, right? And that's one of those things that we talk about with our youth mentoring programming. It's like that, that is a, a great way for a trafficker to, to recruit someone into prostitution when somebody is like struggling and not being accepted for who they are to say, I accept you and I see you, right? Um, mm-hmm. But then again, leveraging that to say, and I've got some men that want to pay to buy your body, right? And, you know, they see you as you too, right? And turning them out, right? So it's like, you know, there's this place that we really have to do better. We have to do better as a community. And you're certainly like bringing it when when it comes to uh, the realities of the circumstances, the situations, the individuals, and 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 taking it to the people who can make the community better, so that they can listen to these people and listen to you. Uh, but I'm curious, what when did that start to enter your mind that you could do this? Because listening to you is inspiring and. Was there, when, when was there a moment where you're like, this is my path, I need to start making the exit plan? So, you know, uh, the moment where, you know, I was actually just talking with a friend of mine, we were just driving back, she actually works with us. And, you know, it was like, I wanted to exit, you know, and I think that's the thing that people think it's like, oh, she wants to be doing this or she doesn't want to get out. And it's like, all of us want to get out. It's not fun, right? Like, uh, but we just don't see a path out, right? And I was in jail again, uh, right before I actually exited. And I remember like, I'm in the paddy wagon and like all of the girls are crying because they're going to jail. And I'm like, guys, we get a hot meal when we get there. <laughs> like, I was like, this is the jam, right? It's November. Like I got a place to stay, you know, and I was in my jail cell like a couple weeks later, like, wow, I'm up, right? Like, why am I happy that I'm here right now? Like, something has got to change. Right. And then when I got out and there was like this work being done in the community, you know, and, and, you know, initially I tried to jump right in. I'm, you know, I'll be honest. I was like, this is where I belong. Right. Like my experiences, like I, I can do something to, to change things. But again, it's people's experiences aren't linear. You know, I remember being at like a end demand rally in Maine South and I'd been like, know a couple weeks out of the life and I'm holding a sign about like not buying people and I felt like such a fraud right I ended up putting the sign down and walking around the corner to a sex buyer's house because like I just I didn't feel like I I belonged there you know but I just continued to show up at those tables and then one day just said you know f this I'm not going to do this anymore and I erased the buyer's numbers that I had in my phone and I knew it was going to be a struggle, but it was better to struggle than have to sell a part of my soul every day, right? So I can have a pack of cigarettes and, you know, keep staying involved in that and that alliance. And again, having like feeling like I had some type of value to offer this world was, you know, I think a combination of all of those things was helped me to be able to exit. What you just said there, I wonder if there's parallels between... Um, thinking about exiting and doing that whole process like you described and the mindset of addiction too. Mm-hmm. It's like you said you went through and you had to delete the numbers of your sex buyers. Yeah. That sounds like a story I've heard about people who are like addicted to heroin or something. They're like, mm-hmm. I just had to delete my dealer's number. Do you think yeah. that's similar? Yeah. Or? I think there's absolutely parallels, you know, um, 
You know, one of the one of the things that I think is really an underutilized component uh, for recovery is that like community support and feeling that connection to like an affinity group, right? And so, and that is so important with exiting prostitution as well. It's like you know having other people around that have had those same experiences, right, to be able to like support you through that process. And so, I think there's absolutely parallels, you know, and I think. One of the things that we don't talk enough about with addiction too, is that like most of that is trauma driven as well. And, and when you like, but we don't talk about that, you know, addiction is the only disease unless there'll be another podcast for another day that we actually don't treat like a medical condition. You know, I remember, you know, I, I also have epilepsy, right. And like, I'm told to go to my neurologist and take my meds. Right. I've never gone to my neurologist. And his response was, there's a book of meetings, go pray those seizures away. Right. Like, I tell me to like come to my appointments and take my medication. And so like, why are we not treating substance use disorder in that way? And I think there's also like that stigma, right? Like with substance use disorder, just like there is with prostitution and exiting, right? And so I think there are a lot of parallels and they're so interconnected, right? And I believe one accelerates the other too, right? So it's like, Initially, it's like, you don't, you're trying not to use, right? And you're so traumatized that like, you're trying to figure out how do I make it through the night without, without picking up, right? And then you end up picking up and then you have to do things that make you feel unsafe to get, you know, so what I mean, it's like one accelerates the other uh, as well. Well, talk, talk to us a little bit about Lyft. Uh, how did that start? What's the mission? So Lyft uh, is, our, our mission is to end prostitution through implementing the uh, equality model legislation. Uh, there's actually a bill in Massachusetts right now that's called an act to strengthen justice and support for sex trade survivors that we're working on. Uh, and what that does essentially is it, again, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but like decriminalizes for the prostituted person. It advances social justice work because it also implements a sliding scale fee for buyers. So it also expunges people's criminal records if they have prostitution charges on it automatically, which is like a, a huge wow. step forward. And then it also like invests in, in survivor-led exit programs, right? Because we know that's uh, what works with this population. And so our mission is to end prostitution, but it's also to provide the support that people need to, to exit. And so it started initially as a support group to support me. Um, and then over time has really like, we, you know, started to like look at what our needs were in the community and, you know, realize that prostituted people weren't gonna to come to a support group. So we started a drop-in center right up uh, on the track and started inviting women in to just get things like clean clothes and underwear for a day, right? Or whatever it was that their needs were. And so, you know, our drop-in center now, you know, now I look and it's, we own a building over on Lincoln Street, which encompasses our drop-in center, our youth mentoring program, uh, a shelter, we're opening an outpatient mental health clinic for prostituted people. We have Jonas Place. I just look at like the evolution of lifts sometimes and it's like astounding to me because just to be clear, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, still don't most of the time, but I got a great team of people around me that too. And, you know, just how we have grown and, you know, really like we are an organization of survivors and working for survivors. And I think that's the most important piece of it, you know. Is, is lifting the voices of those most impacted. That's amazing. Well, that is incredible. Yeah, congratulations. Um, how does it feel to give back in that way? I love, you know, it's so funny because we were talking about it the other day and it's like, we really have um, a great, great team and like people actually like 
you know, it's going to sound crazy, but like love working for us because they have the freedom to actually like push back and speak out. I mean, imagine me being your boss. I'm like, sure, say whatever you want. I do. Right. Like, you know what I mean? So like people feel like they have the freedom to push back and challenge systems and like stand in their value system. And it like, it feels amazing. And it feels amazing to look around. Like, you know, even we got like this little award yesterday and someone came to present a check and it was like, you know, before it was me and now it's like 10, 10 survivors standing together accepting this, right? It's not, no longer Nikki Bell. Uh, we are a movement and um, it feels amazing. I love, it, it doesn't feel like work to me. I love what I do. What what award did you win? So Julianne Moore, uh, Julianne Erdig, she, it was Love Takes Action. So New York Life Foundation, they uh, gave out 10 awards across the state. And so I was given an award and then they donate to a chosen nonprofit, which obviously I chose. <laughs> That's incredible. And I'm going to give it to Habitat for Humanity, right? <laughs> it's going in our bank account. Not that Habitat for Humanity isn't great. I'm just like, the example that came to my mind. Um, if, um, if people hear your story and are affected by it and they want to help out, is there anywhere that they can go to donate, either time yeah. or resources? Yeah, absolutely. So if on our website, it's just liftworcester.org. And so, you know, if people are hearing this and they are themselves somebody that's been impacted and needs support, uh, you can also go right on our website and connect with us that way, which I will say, like we had our website redesigned recently and it's, it's, we've been getting so many people that are like self-connecting and referring to us, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and there's also information on there about volunteering or uh, and donating. You can donate right through our website as well. And also, uh, you know, one of the things that people I think don't don't realize is like that, you know, yes, we want money. We always want money, right? That's every nonprofit needs money. So donate money if you can. But also there are other ways, right? I think one of the things that we're really trying to do at Harbor is like, we need our community to come in and share their interests and skills with the people that we work with, right? Because that's how people find out, like Harbor is a place to like find out what you're interested in and be interested. And so we're really looking for people to help come in and share, like build programming with us, teach people the resources that they need. I will tell you the girls, like after uh, that event. They're like, how do we do a podcast? We need to get on it. And I'm like, great, let's figure that out. I have no idea. Right. But like they're finding like what, what is interesting to them? What do they want to do? Right. And I think we often don't realize we have so much to share with people and it doesn't always have to be adult, adult, you know, money. It can be your skill sets and interests too. That's really cool. Um, the last real question I have for you, unless Tim and Lance have something else is that for places that organizations such as Lyft don't exist, how can people help in their communities? Do you have any advice? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think is like hard is like, I think we've, we've learned over time and there is no like best practice at this point because this work is so new, but like promising practices that like services and programs should be survivor led. But I would say, you know, recognizing that prostitution is a form of gender-based violence and we believe sexual violence, you know, to connect to your local rape crisis center or gender-based violence provider would be my suggestion. Does your organization help men affected by this too, or is it just strictly for women? Yep. So a couple of our programs. So Jonna's Place is for women, our people that identify as women. And also uh, Harbor, the shelter portion is for women. But our day resource center, our drop-in center, our youth mentoring program, our advocacy programming, 
we support all survivors of prostitution, uh, regardless of what gender they identify. And my my only other question is uh, something that you brought up a little while ago. You said uh, people with maximum uh, vulnerability. I'm wondering what the identifiers are for that. You know, how do you yeah. identify somebody with maximum vulnerability and what is that? Yeah. So for us, we use a vulnerability index. And so we look at things like, are they experiencing homelessness? Are they current, currently experiencing violence? Do they have active substance use disorder, right? And so we kind of score people's vulnerability in that way. Do they have access to safety outside of our program, right? Like, and looking at, like, making sure that our most marginalized and at-risk people in our community have a safe place to go. And the, the drop-in centers, those are... Uh, locations. Do you, do you have a few of them? So now, no. So all of our programming now outside of John's place is over on Lincoln Street from okay. 16 Lincoln Street. And people can drop in when they need it. It's 24 hours a day. And they can call 508-556-6101. Uh, I'll say that again, 508-556-6101. That's our phone number for Harbor. And so people can call. It's 24 hours. They, they'll get somebody on the phone, another survivor on the phone. To help walk them through how they access our services and programs. I didn't even need to ask the question. Awesome. <laughs> He's amazing. a professional. Yes. <laughs> Getting it done. Wow, the vulnerability score is is uh, very very cool. Um, so that's something you you developed uh, at Lyft. So there's existing vulnerability indexes. We have uh, changed it to to kind of. A, capture people in prostitution and the violence that they're experiencing so is like a, a scale um that you use like numbers yeah yep and so we do that also for john's place too to like prioritize like where people are on the wait list right so we're making sure that again the most at risk uh for violence or experiencing current violence have access to programming what do you do when you see someone at a certain point on that scale so we try to help them get into programming as soon as like if they're, you know, usually wait lists are like chronological. We don't put it in chronological order because we don't believe like, you know, if somebody can stay at their mom's house and they're safe, like we believe that the person that is experiencing homelessness and daily violence should be prioritized, right? Like they don't have that access to safety that somebody else has. And so uh, we, you know, we work really hard to get them to safety, to help them access our programming. If they need other programming, we will also do that. So just working hard to make sure that they have access to safety. And That's a case so by smart. case, yeah, personal <laughs> approach to each yeah. Uh, situation is, um, yeah, that's insanely impressive. Yeah, it is. And I think it's something that a lot of like bureaucracies kind of miss too, because they do go by like order of people well, she who... called first and it's like okay great but she's at her mom so i don't really care <laughs> she called first right um you know she's right. not going to be stabbed to death tonight so we're going to prioritize her um you know yeah it seems like this war if i can call it a war is like fought on so many different fronts too because it is such a systemic issue um and i think you you've touched on all of those things like really beautifully um, but I just, I want to say, like, thank you for the work that you do. And um, I hope you keep fighting. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. This is uh, this has been an incredible conversation. Really appreciate your time. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Yeah.